<clears throat> well, we're talking about relationships, you know, and as we all know, I'm, I'm sure uh, they can certainly be messy, can't they? Complicated, uh, sometimes really difficult, but they can also be beautiful and encouraging and strengthening. In fact, there are many areas of our lives that can either fill us or drain us. And I, I meet new people all the time. In fact, I meet with people almost, almost on a daily basis uh, who are running through this life on empty, whether it's their finances or their schedules or their commitments or their relationships. There seems to be no shortage of people who seem to be almost constantly drained by certain aspects of their lives when, uh, when those same areas of their lives could be breathing life and health and strength and encouragement into them. Uh, and so starting last Sunday and for the next few weeks, we're talking about some of those areas of our lives that are sort of top candidates for either being positive forces for good in our lives or negative forces that can tear us down and wear us out. And of course, we'll be looking at each of these areas from a biblical perspective uh, because I'm personally convinced that God's word and uh, specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ holds the recipe for healthy living for each of these areas of our life that uh, seem to loom so large I think over most people, again, either for the better or for the worse. And if you were here last week, you know that we started off this new sermon series, uh, which is entitled Running on Empty with a message uh, about relationships, because that's such a vast source of uh, both joy and suffering in the world. And therefore, it's a really big subject to try and cover, quite frankly, in just one sermon. So we broke this particular message this sermon up into two parts. So last week we covered relationships part one, and today we'll be finishing up this topic with relationships part two. And we'll be working our way then through the back half of Romans chapter 12 as we covered the first half of that chapter last week. We saw then how the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to the Christian churches in Rome, he starts out chapter 12 by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And then he goes on to point out at least seven areas or aspects of our lives for forming and maintaining healthy relationships. It almost reads like a bit of a prescription for keeping our relationships healthy and thriving. Okay, And so we covered the first four of those uh, points last week, and I'll mention them here just as a review. Number one was that healthy relationships are always rooted in Christ. Okay, Number two, healthy relationships start with humble people. Number three, healthy relationships are cultivated within the church. And number four, healthy relationships are bound together by love. Okay, and these, these first four points carried us through the first ten verses of Romans 12. And so we're going to pick up our text today, right where we left off last week at verse 11. And look at the last three points that Paul makes here about relationships. And so if you have your Bible with me and you want to, or with you and you want to turn there uh, and read it with me, you can. We'll also put it up on the screen as always. It's in the ESV version. Sometimes people ask me what version we're uh, reading out of. It's in the ESV version, English Standard Version. That's the version that I use uh, because that's the version that Jesus uses. Just kidding. Okay, and again, this is Paul writing to the churches in Rome. While he's in Corinth, this is about A.D. 57, um, on his third missionary journey when he wrote this letter. So let's read it together, starting at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. 
If you read these three verses in the original Greek, in the ancient Greek language that they were written in, uh, it's amazing. They're far more descriptive, really, and insightful than what we get in most of our English translations, even the ESV. And so without taking time to translate every word, we're going to cover some of the highlights here to help paint the picture of just how descriptive Paul is in his instructions in these verses. When he says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. The word zeal in the original Greek is the word spude, which means diligence. Okay. The word fervent in the Greek is the word zeo, which literally means boiling hot. The word spirit in the Greek is the word pneuma, which refers either to the Holy Spirit or more likely in this case, our spirit. And the word serve in the Greek is the word duluo, which refers to a slave or the service uh, that a slave would offer to his master. And so Paul says, look, don't be lazy. Don't hold back in diligence. Rather be boiling hot from deep within yourself in your service to the Lord, like a slave willingly and passionately serving his master. This is how we are to give ourselves in relationship to God. This is supposed to be our disposition in our relationship to God, boiling hot from our innermost parts. And then he says, rejoice in hope, verse 12, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. In other words, in your service to God and to others, which we'll see in a moment, always remain devoted to hope, patience, and prayer. And then verse 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So in addition to your service to God in that same spirit, give to the needs of the believers, that's the saints, and the word hospitality, interestingly enough, at the end of verse 13 in the Greek, is the word phylloxenia. It literally means love for strangers. So Paul finishes the verse with how we're to give to strangers, obviously including unbelievers here, probably who he's referring to. And if that's not strong enough language to describe how we're to give to God and to others, the word that Paul uses in verse 13 just before hospitality, when he says show hospitality, that word show in the Greek is the word dioko, which literally means to pursue in a hostile manner or to persecute. It's a, very, it's a very strong word in the original Greek. It indicates a relentless pursuit of something or someone. In fact, it's the exact same word that Paul uses in verse 14, which we'll see in a moment when he says, bless those who persecute you. And so he's using, he's applying the same word in two different contexts, of course, between verses 13 and 14. But the thrust of that word in, in both cases is the same. He says, we're to pursue with great vigor love for strangers. We're to go after them with the same passion as we would go after an enemy, except that he follows up the word dioko with the word phylloxenia, love for strangers. So it's really a very compelling, a very rich way that Paul is instructing us in how we're to give to others. It's tremendously uh, descriptive language concerning our relationships. He says, this is how we're supposed to give to God and to other believers and to unbelievers with a committed, boiling, hot passion for God and for others, like slaves willingly serving their masters passionately. And even when it comes to complete strangers, Paul says, we're to relentlessly pursue them with the same passionate love and service as we do with God and other believers. 
And then he sandwiches in between all of that, in verse 12, this command to stay devoted to hope and patience and prayer. And it's interesting. Why would Paul say that? In between telling us how passionately, we're, uh, fervently we're supposed to give ourselves to God and others. Why mention that we should be devoted to hope, patience, and prayer? It's because Paul understood better than most people how difficult relationships could be. He's saying, this is what you're supposed to do. And by the way, I know how hard what I'm telling you to do is. He says, you're going to need a really healthy portion of hope and patience and prayer in your life when it comes to your relationships because relationships are all about passionately giving up yourself for others. And that ain't going to be easy for you to do. I know. I'm Paul. Look at where I've been, right? I mean, if anybody had the the grounds to tell someone else this, it's Paul, the authority to speak from his own experience. So he's teaching us here, and this is our fifth point, if you're keeping up with the last four points from last week. He's teaching us that healthy relationships give more than they take. All right? There's nowhere in this entire chapter, Romans 12, where Paul says, this is what you should be getting out of your relationships. This is what you can expect to receive from your relationships. He doesn't say that. On the contrary, his entire instruction here is about giving, which is a a constant theme throughout the whole chapter. Healthy relationships give more than they take. Now, it's not to say, of course, that we don't receive anything from our relationships, right? Of course we do. We get a lot out of relationships, and that's a good thing. Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't get anything from each other. He's saying that what we do get shouldn't be the focus in our relationship. In other words, we should focus on giving first, and then what you receive is a benefit, a result of healthy giving relationships. And of course, uh, we probably uh, all know that both parties involved in any relationship must give, right? If, if, if the relationship is going to function the way that God intended it to. And so this isn't a one-way street, and therefore it's not always possible for every single relationship in our lives to work out according to God's instruction in his word. And Paul addresses that actually later in this text. We'll see that in a minute. But the point here is that our focus, our focus should be on what we can give, not on what we can get out of a relationship. And this is where I I believe personally uh, that most relationships begin to fail today, begin to break down. I think that most people in our culture today tend to think about themselves first and others second. I do. It's my natural default position to think about me first. I think that's fairly common. I believe it's typically bred into us uh, from the time that we're very young. And of course, uh, there are those uh, who are not that way. I know a few people who are not that way that seem to consistently put others first. And and they're like superhumans as far as I'm concerned. Uh, It's wonderful. But even for them, I would contend today that in most of those cases, they're not that way by happenstance or by chance. I, I would argue that for the majority of the people who sort of default toward giving first in their relationships, that somewhere along the way in their lives, they've been taught to be that way to be givers. Uh, They've either been raised that way, taught from their parents, or taught through their own life experience, or taught through their experience with Christ and His Word, that giving is the better way, and they've made that a practice throughout their lives. We talked about this with humility last week. A natural giving approach to relationships is typically something, just like humility, that we have to train ourselves to do. 
It's something that requires usually daily practice because it isn't a natural default for most of us. We have to be intentional about giving in relationships. And, and I want to mention here that the most effective way to understand giving in relationships, the way it's supposed to be, is to fully understand what God has given to us. Okay? When Jesus Christ came to this earth and gave up his very life for each of us, we were given in that the ultimate example of what it means to give to others. And Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. He, he modeled that for us. All right? Healthy relationships give more than they take. But what, but what I experience as a pastor uh, on a regular basis is the opposite of that. I don't think I've ever had anyone say to me in counseling that they were fed up with their spouse because their spouse just wouldn't let them give enough in the relationship. I've never, I've never heard that. It's always along the lines of, I'm not getting what I need out of this relationship. And again, I'm not trying to discount the fact that we do receive positive things from relationships, and that's good and that's even necessary. We all, we all have emotional and physical and spiritual needs that should be met through relationships with God and others, and that's good. But when our personal desire to receive overshadows our desire and sense of responsibility to give when it comes to our relationships, then our vision, our perspective in those relationships becomes skewed because then it's all about me. It's all about what I need. It's all about what I want. And then when we don't get what we want out of a relationship, when we're self-focused, the first thing that most people will do is point to the other person and say it's their fault. And so I can tell you, uh, time and time and time and time again, people come in for counseling and they want the pastor to fix their spouse or fix their fiance before they're married or to fix their friend. And so uh, there's a very large percentage of time in pastoral counseling often spent just trying to help that person to take their focus solely off of themselves and what they want. And to redirect at least some of that focus on to giving to God first and to the other person in the relationship second. And then themselves somewhere, uh, somewhere further down the line. Because if you can get two people who are at odds thinking about God and each other before themselves, I'm telling you it's almost miraculous. In fact, I believe it is miraculous and it's beautiful. And it's inspiring to watch the transformation that occurs in that relationship. It's one of my favorite parts about being a pastor. Is watching relationships change before your very eyes. When you can get people to begin thinking about God first and others next. Before themselves. Okay, It all starts with giving first. Healthy relationships give more than they take. All right, Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay, so with each section of this chapter, as we work through it, Paul progressively 
raises the stakes on relationships. So just as he finishes explaining how we should give into our relationships, he takes it to another level. He says, you need to give more than, than you take. And by the way, if you want your relationships to endure, you're going to have to stay with it no matter how hard it gets. And it might get really hard, right? Healthy relationships endure through the good and the bad. Healthy relationships endure through the good and the bad. And it's interesting to note here that when Paul talks about persecution and living in harmony with one another and not looking down on each other in this verse, he wasn't just referring to strained relationships between people inside and outside the church. In fact, he may not have been referring to that at all. He was definitely referring to people within the church here. Okay, During most of the first century, in many of the Christian churches, and particularly in Rome, there was a, a, a really diverse mixture of both Jewish and Gentile Christians that worshiped side by side in the same churches. In fact, it, it wasn't until after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 that the Gentile and Jewish believers really began to segregate their faith communities. And so at this point in A.D. 57, there were still a lot of different dynamics at play between them within the church not the least of which was the fact that Jewish Christians still held to the ceremonial laws from the Old Testament and the Gentile Christians saw themselves as free from the Mosaic restrictions of that law. And so when Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. He's talking about all of these Christians that are in the same church together who came from different religious backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and economic backgrounds. They're all together. And so there's all this tension brewing between them. Even though they've all accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ as truth, there are enough differences between them to cause a lot of differences, a lot of fractured relationships. And so Paul's saying, hey, guys, knock it off. If you want your relationships to be healthy, so far as it depends on you, let love and peace be bigger than your differences. Let what you have in common, namely the the gospel of Jesus Christ, let that be bigger than what is uncommon among you. Have compassion for each other, even when you don't agree on everything. Right? Hurt with each other. Rejoice with each other. Endure through the good times and the bad times. That, that is what the body of Christ, that's what the church is supposed to look like. But the truth is, not much has changed, really, for the church today. Has it? The specific issues might be different, but the problem is the same. We're far too quick in the church today to devour our own when we disagree with one another. And lest we think this only affects the church, remember, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By what? He says, if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. When there's a lack of unity and harmony and peace within the church, it not only hurts the church, it also speaks volumes to those outside of the church. In fact, it completely obliterates our witness to the rest of the world. By, by and large, we're far too quick today to attack each other in the body of Christ. And honestly, why would anyone want to join us when we're tearing each other apart all the time, right? There is a place for accountability and even judgment 
within the church. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But those are in-house matters between believers within the church. In other words, Paul addresses the proper way to deal with disagreements within the church, as does Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. And across the board, where we see those discussions or disagreements addressed in Scripture, we see them described as these in-house matters to be played out within the church, not in public, not on Facebook, not on Twitter and the other public forums. We're not supposed to air out our grievances with one another outside of the church. For the same reason, we shouldn't air out our grievances within our families by posting running narratives about every disagreement that we have within our families on public forums and social media. Why? Because the general population cannot possibly understand every detail and dynamic happening within your family at any given time. And so when we make public every private detail and imperfection in our families, we misrepresent our family to the rest of the world. And ultimately what we're doing is hurting the other family members who are now being viewed by total strangers who have no understanding of what's really going on in a very negative light. It's actually a sin to do that. We're slandering each other in public. That is absolutely against what Scripture teaches us to do as the body of Christ. It's the same thing in the church. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Okay, we, we should never go around complaining about each other in the church to other people, particularly to those outside the church, because they don't understand every detail and dynamic of this family, right? And they certainly don't understand spiritual things if they're not followers of Jesus Christ. And so when we trash each other in public, it destroys our witness because it discredits the greatest single piece of evidence that there is on this earth to the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that we're supposed to be one in him. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What is this? If you have love for one another, how will people know that we are the true church? When they see us loving each other. That's it. We destroy that when we go after each other outside the church. Okay, People need to see our love for one another in good times and in bad times, which is the spirit of what Paul is really addressing throughout this entire chapter. And we see it in many other places in Scripture as well. Uh, James wrote, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. James 5, 9. And we'll talk about what he means by being judged in a minute. If we want to have healthy relationships, we're going to have to learn to endure with one another through thick and thin. We just... Too much of our culture today just takes the easy way out of relationships now. We just, we just walk out on each other, right? We have to learn to endure through good times and bad. It means we can't write each other off because we don't immediately gel with each other's personality. We don't dismiss those who aren't like us. We don't push people away or walk out the door the moment we realize that we don't see eye to eye on everything. Listen, even on matters of faith and doctrine and styles of worship and philosophies of ministry, that's what was happening in the Roman church. There were doctrinal differences, heavy stuff that they disagreed on. Philosophies about ministry and faith. Right? Paul says, knock it off, guys. 
You got to live in harmony and at peace. And, and this doesn't even begin to address real hardship. Like when there's infidelity and marriages, you know, broken trust, deep hurt in relationships, divided and broken families, business relationships when you're cheated by another believer, deep hurts that can either permanently divide us or mature and strengthen us as long as both parties are willing to endure that hardship together and stay the course. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. So again, it's not that we avoid or ignore those hurts in our lives, you know, so as not to rock the boat. No, on the contrary, we meet those head on. But we do it in love, always toward the goal of restoration and healing within relationships. In Matthew 18, Jesus outlines this process of accountability within the church. We can't read it right now. We don't have time. But it ends with excommunication. You can go there and read it yourself. If the person doesn't repent and choose to be restored to the church, what Jesus describes is is where excommunication comes from. And even as harsh as that seems, the goal throughout Jesus' teaching there is to bring that person that is sinning against his fellow believers back to repentance so that he can be restored to his relationships within the church and so that those relationships can be healed and strengthened. Okay, And I've, I've talked about this at length before, so I won't go into it now other than to say Paul teaches plainly in 1 Corinthians 5 that we as believers are not to judge the world Those outside the church, uh, that's God's job. That is not our job. We're supposed to just love people outside the church. We are not supposed to judge people outside the church. That is true. However, Paul also says in that same passage and actually on into chapter 6 that we are supposed to judge one another inside the church out of love always toward the goal of accountability and restoration and healing within the body Always. That's the point of it. So I'm saying all of this to say, yes, we're supposed to deal with our disagreements and our hardship within relationships at church and at home and at work and and with our friends. We should never avoid that or pretend those issues don't exist and just act like everything's good and we're all happy. No, not at all. We need to meet those issues head on. That's honesty. That's integrity. We need to do that. But Paul says we're always to do that in love and with great patience, bearing each other's burdens through the good and the bad. Okay, and then just one more point on this portion of our text, and then we'll move on. In verse 18, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's a pretty clear indication that it may not be possible to always resolve every conflict in every relationship, unfortunately. The truth is there are times in some relationships, even within the church, even amongst the most mature believers in our ranks, when a relationship cannot be fully restored because either one or both parties are unable or unwilling to do what is necessary for that to happen. And I think it's really interesting that Paul makes it a point to include this in his letter uh, to the church here because if you'll remember back in Acts chapter 15, almost a decade earlier in Paul's life, he and Barnabas were like best friends. They had been extremely close friends, traveling companions up to that point. And they came to a place in a disagreement that was so huge, it was so significant, they were unable or unwilling to continue working together and they split up. There was a divide there, a broken relationship. Fortunately, we see later in Paul's writings that it appears that there was at least 
some measure of restoration there at some point, at least to some degree. But the point is, there, there may well be times in your life when you've done everything that you possibly can to see a relationship restored, and yet the other person is, is having nothing of it. They're not interested in fixing. And I've been through this with people in counseling. When one party who, who was not in the wrong, who had been horribly wronged, wanted nothing but restoration. And the other person would give lip service and say, yep, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to repent. I want to do right. And, and they just kept on living a double life. No intention of ever actually. And it went on for years. Years of heart-wrenching counseling. Okay? If both people aren't willing to do what is necessary, sometimes not all relationships can be fixed. And when that happens, sometimes all that you can do is pray for that person. We have to forgive them, even if they don't ask for it, and then let them go. That's hard to do, I understand. But sometimes that's all that we can do because the only person that you can control in any relationship is yourself, which is why Paul says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay, there, there may be a time in any relationship when reconciliation is impossible, but so far as it depends on you, don't give up. Don't walk out. Don't throw in the towel when times get tough because healthy relationships endure through the good times and the bad, okay? Let's continue. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. That sounds pretty good. But do not be overcome. I always love that verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in keeping true to form, uh, throughout this chapter, Paul saves the best for last, or, or I should say by far the most difficult requirement for forming and maintaining healthy relationships. He tells us to give up our own rights. Trust God, even to the point of loving our enemies. All right? Healthy relationships surrender individual rights. Healthy relationships surrender individual rights. In this country, we're all about our rights, aren't we? And I'm very grateful, by the way, that we have a constitution that protects our rights as American citizens and as human beings. Obviously, there are a lot of people in this world who live under the worst kind of oppression and subjugation to uh, governments while we enjoy so many freedoms that others only dream about. And that's v wonderful, really. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we're, of course, not only citizens of this country, but we're citizens of God's kingdom first. And that's anything but a democracy, right? God is our king. We are his subjects. In fact, the word most often used to describe believers in the New Testament in the Greek is the word doulos, which means bondservant or slave. It's related to duluo that we looked at earlier. We're slaves of our king. That's what it means to love God and others. It's to give up our lives for them. Remember last week we talked about this, the way to live perfectly is to love perfectly. The way to live perfectly is to love perfectly, and that means sacrifice. It means giving up ourselves and our rights for others. And Paul knew that. He understood that from firsthand experience, that, that this is really, really hard work, 
hard teaching. It's a hard thing to have to share with the believers in Rome, particularly those Jewish believers who had been living under the oppressive rule of the Roman government, knowing that they were God's chosen people. And they believe that their God-given rights were being trampled on, and they were. And here Paul, uh, he's explaining to them that they can't even exercise their rights over their enemies. It almost makes me chuckle a little bit because Paul starts out the last and most difficult part of this chapter by saying, beloved. In other words, just before he lays this heaviness on them, he says, you know I love you, right? And then he starts to explain that not only do they have to give to each other in their relationships, and not only do they have to endure through hard times together, but to take it even a notch further, he says, you're going to have to lay down any sense of entitlement and fairness and equal rights that you think you may have as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's hard enough to sacrifice and think of others first and endure through hardship with the ones that we love, isn't it? I mean, it is. But now Paul says you have to do all that with the ones that hate you too. Why does he say that? Why that? Because Jesus loved those who hated him. He gave up what would have been fair. He forfeited his own rights and sacrificed everything for those who hated him. And we're supposed to live by his example. And, and that all sounds really noble when we read it. But how many of us actually live this way? There are people who've done things to me and my family. And I can tell you that generally speaking, the very last thing on my mind is to feed them if they're hungry. Or give them a drink if they're thirsty. Because it's not natural for me to love my enemies. My nature wants to meet them in a dark alley at night. And take my vengeance. And Paul knows that. He knows that response is typical of most people, so he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35, particularly to these Jews who would know it, where the Lord says, vengeance is mine, it's not yours. In fact, as followers of Jesus Christ, not only can we not take vengeance, but there's a sense in which we have no rights of our own at all, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You see, we, we can't even claim ownership over ourselves, much less anyone else. And so Paul explains a very difficult concept here by taking it to the extreme. He says, we have no rights even when it comes to our enemies. And then if that applies to our enemies, of course, how much more to those that we love, that we're in relationship with? How often, when in the midst of conflict with someone that we're in relationship with, do we take a stand? for ourselves, for what we see as our rights. So we dig our heels in because we're convinced that we're right and they're wrong. And then we refuse to back down because why? We feel entitled to defend ourselves and protect ourselves from being hurt. Isaiah 53, 5, prophetically, it says Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are right, should restore him in the spirit of gentleness, the one that's wrong. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when someone does something wrong, Paul says, Those of you who are in the right, you spiritual ones, 
should do whatever it takes to protect yourselves so the one who did you wrong can't hurt you anymore. That's not what he says, is it? In fact, he doesn't even tell us to scold the transgressor before restoring him. He says you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then in the next verse, he says, bear one another's burdens. You're killing me, Paul. Really, when someone does something wrong, those of us who are in the right are supposed to bear that burden with him and then gently restore him back to the relationship. Even though you want to drop kick him across the yard, right? It's the very opposite, what Paul tells us, of standing up for our rights when someone mistreats us. It's the very opposite. But healthy relationships surrender individual rights. If you want your relationships to thrive, to flourish, to grow, to feed life into your life, then you can forget about being right all the time. Forfeit your rights and begin blessing the people that you're in relationship with instead, even when they're wrong. And for the people that, uh, that love you, your relationships will begin to become much stronger when you do that. And for those who don't love you, your love and kindness toward them will bring great conviction into their lives. That's what Paul means by heaping burning coals on his head. It's conviction that comes into the lives of those people when we love them, even when they don't deserve it, okay? Look, we, we struggle so much with relationships. That's why I wanted to tackle this topic first, because before we move on to the others, if we don't have healthy relationships with God first and others second, then nothing else in our lives will be healthy. And the truth is, if you, if you look back at all seven points, the seven arguments that Paul makes about healthy relationships throughout this entire chapter, there's a common thread throughout them, which has to do with always putting God first and others second and then ourselves somewhere after that. Okay, so when trouble comes in, in our relationships, and we all know that from time to time, uh, trouble's going to come. If our first thought is for ourselves, then we've pretty much lost the battle already. We have to learn, all of us, to look to God first and others after that. And the more that you do that daily, the more that you consider the Lord first in everything that you do and others next, before ever thinking about yourself, what you want, what you need, your preferences, when you subjugate yourself to serving Christ and others on a consistent basis, you'll find that in most cases your relationships will begin to change. And those very difficult Relationships, you know, the ones that typically bring nothing but hurt and frustration into your life, those will begin to change because the conviction that comes through the love of God that you express in that relationship. And so often that person will either respond for the better in the relationship or they'll leave you alone because they're not willing to change and they can't stand the heaping coals, the conviction any longer. That's how God overcomes evil with good in your relationships, as Paul puts it in verse 21. And, and in those relationships that are good, but maybe are often on a rocky path, 
you'll often find that they will become far stronger and far more unified as you begin to give before you take and consistently endure with that person through the good times and the bad and especially as you surrender your rights for the sake of Christ and the other person in that relationship, okay? Look, we can have the kind of relationships that we want. The kind that build us up. The kind that encourage us, that strengthen us, that fulfill us, that energize our lives. We can have those kinds of relationships, but it is going to require a lot of effort on your part and a lot of commitment on your part, my part. Always putting Jesus Christ first and others after that. And then watch that part of your life go from being empty to overflowing. Let's pray.